Welcome to That'll Preach. This is our weekly show on the Forks Midtown podcast. And uh, I'm Brian. I'm joined with Paul. And uh, we are going to continue our series on mere Christianity. Are you excited about that, Paul? I am very excited. How are you feeling right now? <laughs> Your weird smile is like totally putting me off. <laughs> My weird smile? What it's just a weird smile. It's late. You've got a weird smile. Paul, why do we do this so late? <clears throat> why, why, what is wrong with us? I was, I mean, I, this one I blame on you. I, you, I think you, there's you a different vibe late. when you record a show at night. So that's why you just you showed know, up late. I feel like we're those late FM radio hosts late at, you know, 1 a.m. <laughs> that no one's listening to. Yeah, and we're just talking. We got, the, we got those really calm voices. And, you know, so if you're a truck driver out there, if you're... Somebody calls in at 2 a.m. asking to play some driver, Kenny G. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you got these people. We're, we're, we're feeding the night crowd the word of God. That's what we're doing. That's what we do. If only this were live, then all of that would make sense. I would be afraid of who calls in. We know we both know a couple people that would call in and we'd be like, you know who you are. You know who you are. We would hang <laughs> up on you immediately. But uh, this is a great series. It's, it's a great series, isn't this? Paul? Are you are you trying I mean, to convince? Tell me yourself. Tell me it's a great. Tell I've tell me this it. is good. I mean, I've said multiple times that I think Mere Christianity is the book that you should read. Like, if you pick one book outside the Bible as a Christian or even as a non-Christian, make it Mere Christianity. What about Jesus Calling? It's like up there with Jesus calling. Don't hate me. I am not even exactly sure what that is, but I know like the gist. Just from that title, you're like, this is probably going to be a weird thing. Yeah. Okay. But uh, Mere Christianity, great book. Uh Before we jump into that, we got to do a hot take. Give me your hot take. My hot take is this. Uh Uh-oh. Baseball is boring. Another sports joke. (laughs) I can't watch baseball. I don't know why people watch baseball. Yeah. So boring. Uh, I mean, okay. Do you watch baseball? No, I don't. watch baseball. I don't. But I've I've heard you say this many times before, and I think there's some truth to it. (sighs) Okay, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that controversial. Football is so much better than baseball. Oh, no, football is terrible. What? Football, you get like... We just found your hot take. That's my... Like, all you get is like 11 minutes of actual gameplay filled with like tens of minutes of stoppages, and it's just so... Like, there's no action. Like you're listening, you're watching like 30 seconds of play, and then that was it. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. You I mean, do, it is kind of true. To say to that. It is from snap to snap. The average football game does end up being like 11 minutes, but yeah, that's a great 11 minutes. Lots of action. So, I mean, it's I don't know. I mean, but, but think about think about baseball. How much action is in baseball? I agree. I think baseball Hours is also boring. Of boringness. <laughs> And it's constant boring. It is. And At least with football, you can leave, come back, you can catch the plays. You can. You know, there's enough breaks you can go to the bathroom. Baseball is just like one long, dragged out, boring thing. The thing that baseball and football have in common is there's no like. Don't put those in the same category. Set end time. You kind of just play based on like the length of the. It's because unlike your beloved European sports, American sports, there has to be a winner. So you just keep playing ad infinitum. Like a baseball game couldn't go anywhere from two to four hours, and a football game could be like also two to four hours. Yeah, what's wrong with that? That sounds terrible. Like well, you don't know, you can't play in your life. You're like, uh, I don't know oh, if I, I could. I see uh, what you're saying. Get you're, dinner with you tonight. When I'm I watching say a game. football, I don't mean soccer, Paul. I mean a, there's a there's a game called American football. I think you're confused. No, I was I was 
I totally had that in mind. No. American football is the terrible one. I'm just, I'm just condescending. You're being ridiculous. Look, I think I'm right on this, though. So there's my hot take. I'm sticking to it. But you're also from Pittsburgh. Like, you guys don't have a baseball culture. No, we do. We do. do you? Oh, Who's, yeah. Pittsburgh Pirates. Huge. Huge in Pittsburgh. Yeah. People go to Pirates games. <laughs> Only no, think, in Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, I think that I get the whole atmosphere, the vibe of a, of a baseball yeah. game's enjoyable, but uh, you just go there take a nap, man. Don't watch the game. Didn't you actually, didn't you fall asleep in, in some? I did. I, I fell asleep during an NFL game. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I went to, I was in Chicago, saw the Bears play the Vikings and I fell asleep was in. This, it wasn't like the Super Bowl. No, no, okay. no, no. It was okay. just a regular season game, but I fell asleep <laughs> in, the, in the stands. <clears throat> and I think the reason is because, you know, it, the, the there is this sort of crowd noise that just becomes white noise after a while. <laughs> Like literally tens and, of thousands of people but cheering their lungs out. And well, they're not always windows. cheering lungs out, but it's uh-huh. enough of a chatter that it's consistent enough <laughs> that it becomes, it's, it's like a noise machine. And then I'm just like, oh man. Did someone else pay for your ticket? Yeah. yeah. So you like fell asleep on somebody else's dollar. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yes. And uh, that's awesome. It was a great nap though. I woke up and I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, sometimes going to a football game live is also a little bit of an overrated thing. Ooh. Because you're kind of like looking down there too small to really tell what's going on. And there's like a sweet spot of where to sit, though. There is a sweet spot. But uh, if you're poor, like me, you just can't. If it's a great it. game, like a night game, uh-huh. that's exciting. But I mean, television broadcasts have gotten so good. You might as well just watch in your living room. And especially if you live in Tallahassee, you're outside, it's 95 yeah, degrees. Yeah. What, what are you talking about? It sounds Going terrible. to those noon games. It's like, mm. what are you? Anyway. But Man, that was uh, like seven hot takes in one. I know. I'm just full of hot takes right now. You are. Taking it taking it all the way. Taker so, of hot stuff. There that was you weird. Go. We're canceled now. That's it. This is our <laughs> last show. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Mere Christianity. We're going to look at book three, uh, chapters five and six, which talk about sexual morality and marriage. And marriage. And marriage. <laughs> which are obviously tied together if mm-hmm. you're a Christian. They're but related. They're Related? I hope they're not related. Mm. They got married. There you go. But one of the things that's so fascinating about this is Lewis is writing in the 40s Mm. about issues about sexual morality that are like completely relevant today. Yeah. I mean, you could read it and he's like, man, this guy is like prophetic. He understands exactly where culture is heading and and all the things that are, are starting to probably start to come into effect in seed form during his day, but progressively grow. And uh, so I think that that's why this continues to be a timeless book. And he begins with a thought experiment in chapter, or in, in, in section five of book section three. Section five, yep. And uh, it's a really interesting thought experiment. It's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it has to do with appetites. Yeah. And well, you want you want to just talk about it? Yeah. So he says, imagine you go to a country where uh, you could attract an entire crowd of people to fill a theater as you're like unveiling like a meal underneath a, a plate or something. Look at this ham sandwich. Yeah. And underneath you find that it's bacon or ham sandwich, and everyone's just like, you know, going off the walls and and, and like they're all drawn to this theater just so they can like look at the food. And like, you'd think that something has gone wrong in that culture regarding food. Like the appetite for food in that society is distorted in some way. And Lewis goes, but like, that's what we do. That like, that essentially is what striptease 
like acts, like they, you can fill an entire theater with the prospect of someone taking off their clothes in that sort of like glamorous unveiling way. And Lewis says, doesn't that like tell us that there's something wrong with a, with a, like that view of sex? Isn't there something about that culture that has gone awry that you can attract all of these people and you can do something that will, you know, attract all of their attention. Uh, it, it shows that like the sexual appetite is, is kind of distorted and misled and wrongheaded. So that's just like a, it should point us to make us question and think, you know, what's gone wrong? What's the problem right. here? If you were some alien and you, or, or not, not if, if you went to some alien planet yeah. and you saw them being, uh, Getting excited about, you know, oh, they're gonna, we're gonna see this like, you know, piece of meat or something like that. Yeah, You'd be like, yeah. that's really strange. Mm-hmm. But, you know, or, or seeing like bacon being unraveled or something. Yeah, like, and, yeah. and, and you'd be like, that's super weird. Like, what's, they've got a weird relationship with food. Yeah. But he goes, well, if aliens came to us and saw the way that we hypersexualize everything or go to a strip tease or something like mm-hmm. that, they would go, they've got a really weird relationship yeah, with sex. Yeah. And, he he he's, he teases that out a little bit where he says, you know, if you were to see people being uh, so obsessed with food, you would think, well, maybe they're starving. Yeah. Maybe they don't have a lot of access to food. Right, right. But he brings up the point, though, that people who are going to strip clubs, people who are, who are obsessed with sex in our culture, our, our, our sex-obsessed culture, we're not doing that because we're starved for that. Mm. We're actually oversaturated with it. Yeah. So how can we be starving for it and oversaturated at the same time? Yeah. So he, he's drawing out a really keen insight here about the sexual appetite. I'm just going to quote him. He says, the sexual appetite, like other appetites, grows by indulgence. Starving men may think much about food, but so do gluttons, the gorged as well as the famished, like titillations. So if you think that oh, look, well, these people are just fawning over the food because they're starved. Well, that's one possibility, right? That's one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is they are so gluttonous and obsessed with food that like, the more they indulge in it, the more the craving for accessing it grows as well. Right. And so he thinks that our society, or at least the society that he was living in, and that mirrors you know, a lot of the aspects of our society, is not sex-starved, but sex-gluttonous, like sex-engorged. And he's writing again in the 40s. Yeah. I mean, imagine what he would think now. Right. That's 100 years out. Well, not 80 years out. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But he, he kind of, again, he, that, 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 that hunger illustration is really helpful. Right, like you were saying, somebody could be uh, starving, mm-hmm. and so the, the slightest hint of food draws all of his attention. Mm-hmm. Or he could be a glutton; he could be filled to the brim. Mm. And the fact that he has a, such an obsession with food means that no matter how much he eats, he'll never be satiated. Right, he'll never be filled up. The the temperate person can moderate their intake of food and sex. So again, it's not about total. Um, abstinence. It's not about total foregoing of these good things. Again, like we said in the last episode, to totally forego use of a good thing is sometimes easier than to moderate a healthy dose of it. And so what Lewis is talking about here is, is chastity. Chastity just meaning using sex within the appropriate constraints that are healthy and good 
uh, for humans. So, so in a way that conduces to and aids human flourishing. And so that means like, it, so he's not advocating famished people, like from, from the perspective of sex, he's not saying starve yourself, never given sex because sex is bad. No, he says that the Christian tradition upholds the good view of sex. Uh, the difficulty is in appropriate intake, is in moderating use within the parameters that are healthy for human well-being and human flourishing. So that that's the task, that's the challenge that he's trying to you know help us move towards. Well, it makes the point that uh, a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that God knows our situation and he will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and perseverance of our will to overcome them. Hmm. So again, it, it goes to that idea that God understands we're not going to be perfect. We're obviously going to struggle with temptations. Yeah. But the issue is whether we are sincerely fighting against those things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and... That it, it, the, the person who is moderate, you know, in, with with a good thing. So, so we're not talking about sins that you're supposed to just straight up avoid. Right. Again, talking about the sexual appetite is something that needs to be done within certain confines, mm-hmm. and uh, it should not be regarded as something evil, but it should be regarded as something that God wants us to preserve for a very specific context. And when we remove it from that context, when you re- divorce sex from marriage and procreation you end up distorting our relationship with sex. So it becomes something that we become gluttonous about. Hmm. It becomes something that we indulge in. And I think that if you think about modern culture, it's all about sexual expression. Yeah. That any kind of denial or focus on chastity, like you're saying, even if it's not saying don't have sex at all, it's like, no, we're saying have sex in a marriage, yeah. right? That is claim itself is seen as repressive, like you're fundamentally denying something about yourself, Hmm. that you are enslaved and in chains. But Lewis says, no, actually, your inability to deny yourself sex, the inability to have chastity is slavery. That obsession itself are the chains that are holding you down. Hmm. Yeah, and and Lewis, Lewis points out that culture agrees that we shouldn't act on all of our desires. Sure. So, so there is a kind of idea there that most people grant that you shouldn't just act on every single quote-unquote natural inclination. Um, so he writes, surrender to all of our desires obviously leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, everything that's the reverse of health, good humor, frankness. Um, and so he talks about when, when you moderate your intake of food, everyone agrees that you need to just not eat as much sugar as you feel like you want, because then that would be bad for your health. It rots your teeth, all these kinds of things. So we all have principles that we moderate our intake and moderate our appetites with. Um, and so the, the point that he's trying to make there is, and I'm going to quote again, for any happiness, even in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. So we don't just instantly gratify our impulses because we realize to do so would just be base and animalistic. And, you know, humans, humans have this ability to, to moderate and to, to restrain our wills in ways that, you know, we see this as unhealthy, so I'm not going to pursue this. So even the, the modern mindset, the secular mindset has that understanding. Um, so it's not a totally foreign concept, right? It just needs to be extended into the, the sexual realm. So we need to right. think we, about- We already have yeah. that concept of mm-hmm. self-denial or delayed gratification. Right. For right. some reason, we just think sex is exempt from that, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it is interesting how 
today, people are all about restrictions on things like diet. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's all about low carb and, you know, plant-based and all these things. It's all about restricting gluten allergies, all these things. Not saying that they're bad. I'm I'm just, I'm just saying that like, we recognize that, yeah, we, we have to be, uh, thoughtful about the things that we eat. Right. Right. But with sex, it just seems like anything goes. Mm. You just consume as much as you want. And anybody that tries to limit you is backwards and bigoted or or something like that. Yeah. And we just don't extend that same sense to this very crucial area of, of, you know, the the human, human nature. We don't, we don't think that about anything else. We, we don't think that, that boundless expression in any other aspect of our lives is healthy. Um, you think about even like free speech, like even the most free speech, like defender of free speech will say, well, you don't like cry fire in a crowded theater, right? Like we curb everything. Like there is a, like, we have this really strong intuitive grasp of good things need to be moderated and there need to be constraints placed around them. Otherwise the good things turn into bad things. And so it's, it, for some reason, like placing constraints on sexual appetites just seems so foreign to culture and maybe even to to human nature. Maybe this is a deep problem. It's not just a uniquely modern one. Um, It's one that, you know, Augustine talks about in the confessions and every culture deals with like restraining sexual appetite is really difficult and painful. And so you might think it's easier to just say, well, you know, let's, let's leave the sort of boundless borderless, anything goes kind of thing. Um, but that that surely strikes me as, I mean, surely it would strike anyone who's you know reasonable thinking about this. We don't do that in any other area. Like, why why is sex immune? Well, he he brings up a second <clears throat> point about that that people think chastity is insane. One because, like like you were saying, it's like, well, why why would we want to extend limitations over yeah. this? But we think about that with our diet. We think about that with all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. The second part is, well, you can't reason. Maybe you could reasonably expect me not to eat carbs and gluten, mm-hmm. but you can't reasonably expect me to abstain from sexual immorality. Right, right. That's, that's too just difficult. impossible. Mm-hmm. Right. And now it's very difficult in this culture, but that's different than saying it's impossible or that we don't have a responsibility to do so. Right. And uh, he, he he mentions. <clears throat> uh, I, was it Augustine who said this? You know, Lord, give me chastity, yeah, but yeah, not yeah. yet. Mm-hmm. And his whole idea is you got to actually want to be chaste. Mm-hmm. You've actually got to want to be uh, somebody who is obedient in this area of your life. Now, I think that is kind of offensive. We, we, even now, you sort of roll your eyes like, yeah, <laughs> you know, Christian, Christian chastity, like, oh, yeah, we're, we're, it's impossible. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. We kind of assume that, but then we wonder, well, why do we say that? Why do we automatically assume that nobody could ever uh, live a life, you know, if, if they never get married without sex? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and that's not saying that that's uh, that you, you'd have to be like, oh, this is great. This is my life stream. <laughs> but everybody is called to chastity yeah. for some period of their life. Mm-hmm. Right. So this can't be something that is so out of reach that's just completely unreasonable for God to ask of anybody. I think that's a little bit of a of a overstatement on our culture's yeah, yeah. side. And I think Lewis notices that. He here. does. And he so he 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 notices the difficulty, he recognizes the difficulty, and he says, thankfully, God has given us 
mercy. So he, he grants that we won't be able to achieve perfect chastity by merely human efforts. We must ask for God's help. Um, and he says, we're going to fail. But after each failure, this is where like the typical Lewis just using words to capture an insight. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. Yeah. So grace is that 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 drive to even after I've messed up to say, I'm going to try again. I'm, I'm going to get up and, and I've got this vision of the healthy life and I'm trying to, to, to change. I'm trying to live in accordance with that. I'm trying to pursue that. And I know that I can't do it on my own efforts. Uh, so God's, God's gift to us is not just like shooting you with a chastity ray and saying like, boom, now you have the ability to do it on your own. God's mercy there is giving you the ability to get up one more time after you have fallen, after you make the mistake and move closer towards that. It's great practical advice because he's not saying like sit in a pool of your own self-loathing yeah. and you're so unclean and right. impure. And he's like, no, look, God's look, confess it to the Lord. Know that there's a promise in the gospel and that you could receive that forgiveness, pick yourself up and keep going. Hmm. And sometimes when we get so locked, like one of the things that feeds sexual morality is self-love, yeah. right? Or self-obsession. Mm -hmm. And if you sit there and you're just always focused on how rotten you are, you're still doing the same thing. And a lot of times what can be helpful in liberating people from, from, from sexual sin especially is being like, look, you're a Christian now. Like, change your habits. It's going to be hard. You're going to screw up. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Confess it. Pick yourself back up. Get people around you. Get get help for this. Yeah. But don't give up. Yeah. It, it's it's not going to be a straight shot. It's going to be a messy process, and you just need to know that. And I think Lewis is is really touching on that. Where it's like God wants us to learn a bunch of things, not just don't do this sin, but He wants us to learn what does it mean to fight sin. Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean to depend on Him? Sometimes it's the case that we realize how needy we are for God's power to help us resist sin. Because mm -hmm. when we realize that we can't just do it on our own, we need the, the spirit of God to help us to fight sin. Yeah. And he also makes this point that, uh, so this is what he says at the end of the, the section there, that virtue, even attempted virtue brings light, indulgence brings fog. So there's this idea that uh, even just attempting to live well gives you a kind of moral clarity. It it frees your 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 judgment making abilities. It enables you to. It gives you perspective. Lets you think clearly. But the person who's indulgent, the person who, so the idea is that the indulgent person is living at the beck and call of their desires and impulses. So their judgment is clouded. They don't have the ability to see and think clearly because they're essentially a slave of their passions. So that kind of even just attempted virtue, it's that that trying to move out of the mire of your own passions and and impulses that that try to hold you down there comes a, there's a clarity that comes to that so th there is a kind of practical clarity there and i'm just thinking that there's been a couple of studies done on this where you can you know give people like expo like some sort of exposure to something sexual and then you give them a moral questionnaire after and people tend to give like really immoral answers when they're like either sexually aroused or they've been showing shown some titillating images or things like that uh, so yeah, there's this idea that indulgence clouds your judgment and makes you unable to see things that you would have ordinarily been able to see and trying, even, even attempted 
virtue, he says, gives you that clarity because right. it moves you just a little bit out of that fog. And, and God gives is you that pleased with that little, with our little stumbling yeah. steps forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I heard this phrase, fail in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like fail, but like don't fail and spiral further. Fail and and repent and, and turn back to God and, and continue to, to try and, and push forward. Mm. Um, but I love what he brings out here where he goes, look, I mean, sexual sin, it's it's the most flagrant and blatant sin. Mm-hmm. He's like, but there's other sins that are the more spiritual kind of, yeah. of you know, uh, backbiting, bossing mm-hmm. and patronizing people, you know, putting other people in the wrong, power, hatred, all these things that are more invisible that can be easily masked as mm-hmm. religiosity. Yeah. And he talks about the animal self, which is the self of, you know, that's, that's enticed by sexual yep. desires yep. and all these things. But then also the diabolical self, which is mm. more about power and those internal things and envy and, and jealousy that you can't really see. And he says, that is why a cold self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Mm-hmm. But of course it's better to be neither. Right, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> but he's saying, and I think you see this in the gospels where mm-hmm. it's like the Pharisees were very sexually pure. Yeah, yeah. But it was the prostitutes and, and the destitute who did not approve, you know, Jesus never approved of their sin, yeah. but he recognized that because their sin is so flagrant and external, mm-hmm. they're marked by it. When they get the offer of forgiveness, they're they're running towards it. Yeah. Right? Because it's clear to everybody else mm. that there's they don't have a reputation to keep up, right? But the Pharisees do have a reputation to keep up, and they don't want their dirty laundry to be aired because mm. they can hide it behind an external veil of religiosity. But that's that that's the danger of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think you know, again, we, we don't want to be overly sentimental and say you know prostitution is fine or mm. sexual immorality doesn't matter. <clears throat> no, Jesus is very against that. Mm-hmm. The whole point, though, is that certain sins are more public and flagrant, and yeah. others are more subtle and can masquerade as religiosity, mm-hmm. uh, can masquerade as godliness, but are in fact actually diabolical, like, yeah, like yeah. Lewis says. He does a really good job of just, so he gives this whole section on sexual morality, and then he he situates it in, the, in that discussion on virtue and says, so we, we can agree that you know we need to constrain, we need to live out the healthy sexual life, chastity, all this stuff. But then again, You've got the animalistic sort of sins, then you've got the diabolical sort of premeditated uh, self-righteousness kind of sins. And uh, so he says, like explicitly, Christians aren't like, it's not like like sexual sin is the worst kind of sin. Right. It's just that it is, it does have, like you said, this sort of public facing, outward facing. There's just no way to hide it, right? Um, what you need to be worried about, like deep down is like, are you actually that self-righteous person who, uh, you know, are, are you acting pharisaical? Are you uh, so deceived by the, the facade that you've put up to other people that you don't see that deep down you're worse than these other people that have the flagrant violations, right? That right. that's the scary place. Well, you, you often see this. Uh, so let's let's talk about marriage. Yeah. So Lewis goes on to talk about Christian marriage, and one of the things that's interesting about Christian marriage is, at least in our, I feel like our evangelical subculture, it's sort of like you you you're, you value sexual purity. Mm-hmm. Before you're married, and then when you get married, that's like the golden ticket. <laughs> and now you can just let loose on every carnal desire you ever, you know, like you're, oh, just, you're just trying to be nice until that moment when you finally get to be yeah. worldly or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but Lewis, <laughs> Lewis does a really great job of saying, no, how you view sex before you're married has a great 
deal of impact on how you view sex after you're married hmm. because it's really a larger conversation about love. So yeah. if, you, if you view love just as this person makes me feel a certain way, hmm. ultimately they're an instrument for your own psychological pleasure mm -hmm. or sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. You're instrumentalizing them. Yeah. But in reality, love is a decision, a choice to be made. And uh, But he doesn't make... He, Lewis has a romantic side, though. Mm -hmm. He doesn't just say love is just a robotic, I choose you, we are now married, something like that. Mm. He does recognize the romance of love, but he puts it in perspective. Yeah. And I think one of the things that he sees is being fed to them, even in the 40s, from culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, imagine today what he would think is the idea that love is purely a feeling and that unless that feeling is sustained to the intensity that it hmm. you might expect um that's as far as commitment goes yeah and he tries to fight against that mm -hmm. and sex is such a powerful driver because sex is a commitment your body makes and because it's so powerful you have to have it contained within a bond that cannot be easily broken hmm. and if that bond is merely feelings then it's on very flimsy ground. Yeah. I like this, this whole section. I just, I wanted, to, I was joking with Brian. I like, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm talking to the audience now. Uh, this, this, there's just so many quotable things in here. Uh, Lewis says, the idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. So if, so essentially marriage is pointless as, as an institution, if all it is, is just loving someone else right. as, as a, as a sort of being in love kind of state, because you can have that without the institution. Any two people can just say, well, we love each other. Right? So what's distinctive about the marriage institution is that self binding to the other person is that I have promised even when the feelings are gone. So Lewis talks about the feelings wane and the thrill sort of dissipating, even when that's gone, I have bound myself to you in a way that is good for both of us objectively. It's good for kids. It's good for society. And it, it situates marriage in this larger role where it's providing a societal function rather than just being this really flimsy sort of, well, it's two people who, who love, why, are in love with each other. Why would you, yeah, why would you need promises to each other if, if the feeling could just sustain it forever? Yeah, yeah. The very fact that you need to make those promises means that the feelings won't sustain it forever. Exactly. I, I think about, again, when Christians talk about premarital sex, it's almost like a contract. Like, if you don't have sex before marriage, then you're going to get amazing <laughs> sex after. And who are you talking to about? Well, it's just it's just pe people talk about purity know, culture and all yeah. these things. And, yeah. But one of the things that people miss is that why does God call us to be chased beforehand? Because he doesn't want us to instrumentalize people. Yeah. Right? He, he wants sex to be an act of self-giving and serving, not not turning somebody else into a tool for your pleasure. Right. And you practice that by chastity, mm -hmm. and then you practice that in marriage. But it's the same principle underneath all of it. And, and, and he, he makes this interesting note on divorce, where he says that if we have this kind of casual view of sex and a casual view of love, then we think that a divorce is simply, uh, he says the modern idea is it's a readjustment of business partners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Or, uh, it, it's, or, or even like, 
uh, deserting a regiment, an mm-hmm. army or something like that. But he goes, no, it's actually more like sawing off a body part. Yeah. It's like yeah. having your legs chopped off, mm-hmm. right? You have something that's bound together that's now being violently ripped to pieces. And anybody who's been, uh, who, who has had uh, their parents get divorced or something like that knows yeah. the, the, the devastating effect, mm-hmm. the lifelong effects of that Absolutely. on children and, and, and family. So this is a, a huge deception that Lewis sees. And he goes, look, don't play with these sacred things, these yeah. sacred orders of, of marriage and sex and the, and the proper order of things, because God has done this in a particular way. And it's not, it's not all just, so the, it's not just a, a tone of doom and gloom, but Lewis brings out this insight that it is natural for us to want to promise and covenant with one another right. in marriage. And so he, he quotes Chesterton here when Chesterton says, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves together with promises. And then he says also, the Christian law doesn't force upon the passion of love, something which is foreign to its nature. It's demanding that lovers take seriously something which their passion impels them to do. So your and he thinks this is just sort of descriptive. Like when you look at the way lovers are, when you look at when people when when they are in love with each other, they do tend to just naturally make promises. Like I like I give myself to you. Like sort of I do anything for you. I, I'll be there forever. I'd walk a thousand miles. Right. Like all of our love songs and things like that, and, and have this self-sacrificial, self-binding kind of. Um, attitude toward them. And and there you see that the passion, the love that is natural has its natural sort of end and culmination in, in a, in a self-binding promise that that's, that's naturally the way that it's geared to go. So it's not like God is placing this like inorganic restriction on our love lives. This is the way that it naturally does move and it bolsters and strengthens the, the love relationship. That's what keeps it going uh, when you don't have like the feelings and the thrill and things like that, which will go up and down. And you know, those are, those are normal, healthy things in relationships. But when they're not there, the promise is what keeps the institution, keeps the relationship intact. And that's what you need. You need that sort of safeguard. And he is, again, not anti-love. He says being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. Yeah. And this is really insightful by Lewis, and he talks about this a lot mm-hmm. in all of his works. But he, he mentions how the most dangerous thing that you can do is to take any one impulse and set it up as the one thing you ought to follow at all costs. Mm-hmm. So he says, by all means, fall in love. Yeah. But don't swear ultimate allegiance to that feeling. Enjoy that feeling, but have it in perspective, hmm. right? And he says there's many things below love, and there's also many things above it, right? And you can't make it the basis of a whole life. It's a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and grow. So not anti-feelings, mm-hmm. right? But just feelings in their proper perspective, and not having feelings be the one who's driving your car. They can yeah. sit in the passenger seat, right? <laughs> nice. But they can't sit in the driver's seat. And, uh, and, and, that's, and, and he distinguishes love from being in love. Yeah, right? yeah. He says, love in the strictest sense is not merely a feeling, it's a deep unity, and this is important, yeah. maintained by the will mm-hmm. and deliberately strengthened by habit and reinforced by the grace with which both partners ask and receive from God. Yeah. So it's habit, mm-hmm. a decision of the will, and empowered and by grace. God's grace. Yeah. And that's not going to sell Hallmark cards. It's not going to yeah, sell romantic yeah. comedies. 
But it's it what is. works. It's what works. Yeah. It's what marriage was designed to do. Mm. Otherwise, why would you have to make vows? Again, mm -hmm. it keeps coming back. Then. Why would yeah. you have to make vows if yeah. all it took is your feelings for one another? And uh, but but again, he says, look, when you're in love, you want to make all these promises, mm -hmm. and that's great. It's sort of natural that's by yeah. design. Yeah. But the fact that you even want to make those promises means that you are seeking to give someone security because you know that you won't always feel that way. Mm. And you want to secure your allegiance to them and you want them to secure their allegiance to you because you know how fickle your feelings can be. I love it. He's got this, this little line where he talks about, uh, like he doesn't, so, so Lewis writes this and he gives this talk before he's married. Yeah. So he's he, single. He says, uh, <laughs> if you disagree with me, of course, you will say he knows nothing about it. He is not yeah. married. He gets I married. Mean, we've heard that a million 20 years times. later. I know. Yeah. But then again, look at it. He's given great marriage advice even as a single person. Yeah, so there like you go. like the Apostle it's, Paul and Jesus. And Paul and Brian. That's there right. There you go. Oh my gosh. Like us. <laughs> We're in great company. That's right. He says, uh, he admits to just not understanding what it means to fall in love. But he says, it seems to me that people are talking about something like 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 falling into having measles. <laughs> so this, this like falling in love just has this this connotation of it, it just happens to you. And you know, that's all well and good. Like, like there are certain emotions and feelings there that, you know, are, are part of the normal, healthy expression of love. But again, they're not the sort of thing that you want steering and directing the, the, the life, the car of your life, whatever Brian's metaphor was from earlier. And then he has this other insight that he says, Christ talks about uh, something can't truly live until it dies first. And he talks about seeds, how they go in the ground. He talks about that as a metaphor for his death and resurrection. And so there's a kind of like something greater comes about as a result of something dying. And Lewis says there's a thrill at the start of relationships. There's, you know, you call it the honeymoon phase, you call it whatever. Um, but he says in, in, in a similar way, let the thrill go, let it die away go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follows. And then you'll find that you're living in a world of new thrills all the time. So there's a kind of like thrillish, honeymoonish sensation that marks the beginning of a relationship that's all well and good. And that might, you know, lead you into making a promise and self-binding yourself. But once you allow that to sort of fall by the wayside and you allow the more deeper, richer, uh, aspects of living life with another human being there, that is, is, a, is a much deeper sense of satisfaction. Um, then, and so when you compare that to, to the, to the cheap thrill of the original honeymoon phase, it just pales in comparison. And it's, I think it's a deep insight there that again is, it runs through Lewis's work here that that sort of instant gratification is something that you have to allow to die. And it might be painful, but that long-term satisfaction is what contentedness and well-being looks like. I remember hearing, I think it was David Bentley Hart, the philosopher, talk about this, where he said, uh, you know, when a man first meets a woman and he falls in love, he can tell his friend all about her. Mm -hmm. He marries her. But then when that man is 40 years into a marriage, he can't even begin to explain her. Mm. And it's this deeper wow. knowledge. and. And you, if you talk to couples who've been together for a long time, married couples who've been married for over a decade, mm -hmm. they don't even remember what it was like dating. Yeah. You know, because they've gone through it's so much. Yeah, and, yeah. and their initial thought, I mean, they, they've, they've changed in, in, in significant ways. And uh, that's part of the, the maturation process. It's supposed to be that way. Because oftentimes the initial thrill is your projection of what you think the other person is. Ooh, right? That's good. 
And that's what happens over time. I mean, if, if all it took was to fall madly in love, mm -hmm. then why are people getting divorced at such a high rate? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's clearly something going on between that initial infatuation and their divorce eight years in or, yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. the average is. And I love what he says when he goes, if you let go of the infatuation, if you let it die, there's a, there's a resurrection there yeah. where you mm -hmm. will find joys that you never expected. The, the, the joy of commitment, mm. right? The joy of sacrificing for somebody else. Um, things that you may not naturally think you would want to pursue, but these are these wonderful little joys that God's like, look, I'm not here to, I'm not asking you to, to have this thing die so that you can be miserable. I'm having you, want, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to have it die so that you might receive blessing. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, how much of that just outside of marriage or sex, how much of that is part of our lives anyway? When we, when we, when we serve other people, when we actually start to walk in, in obedience to God and, and denying ourselves, I think we do find a joy. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's our self-obsession that makes us so miserable in the first place. And it, it just makes me think, Lynn Lewis brings us up, this idea of there are people who don't allow the thrill and the infatuation to die, and they spend their lives sort of just perpetual middle-aged thrill seekers, just kind of like going from one experience to another, trying to get that high. And it just automatically makes me think about like, you know, Christians pursuing the mountaintop experiences, going from conference to conference, not being okay with just allowing the mundaneness and mediocrity and normalcy of human life to, like, they, the window into the beauty of that life hasn't yet been opened for them. And so they feel like they have to trace and thrill-seek. And that, that, strangely enough, funnily enough, that becomes the meaningless empty life because nothing has contented you. You feel like you have to keep drawing from all of these different sources of excitement and thrill and all these things. And your life becomes, your life is, is a, is a shell. It's a husk that you need to try to fill with other things. Um, but if you, if you allow that to die, if you allow the initial infatuation to sort of go away and you go like, Oh, well, God has like blessed me with this partner that I can live with and, and go through hardships with and, and grow a family with and serve in a community with that really is the locus of true happiness. And I think that insight is, I mean, if, if we actually grasped it and lived by it, if we actually grasp this idea that instant gratification should be put to death for the sake of long-term satisfaction, one, we'd avoid all sin, but two, we'd be much happier people. And it's not even instant gratification in, in terms of uh, you deny instant gratification so that you'll be happier in the long run. You deny it for the good of somebody else, too. Yeah, yeah. You deny for the good. So you, you don't want to be like, I'm not going to cheat on my wife because that'll be better for me. Well, that is true, but yeah. also you should not want to do it period, mm -hmm. right? It, it's just wrong. Yeah. Even if you're gonna be miserable still with her, mm. you don't cheat on her because it's wrong yeah. and you made a promise. Yeah. And I think that that's so important into understanding the Bible's ethic of love and the Bible's ethic of marriage. Yeah. And then you, you think about the covenantal love that God has for his people, that mm. he is faithful to them. I mean, that's what Hosea is all about. Yeah. God is faithful to his people and loves them because he's made promises to them. Mm -hmm. And despite their idolatry and their adultery in many cases, he remains faithful, not because of their worthiness, but because he cannot lie. Yeah, And he has bound himself to this marriage. Mm -hmm. 
And in the same way, we, we have to be that way too. No matter how we feel, no matter what goes on, if we've bound ourselves to it, we're bound. Mm-hmm. It's a great discussion. Yeah. Keep reading Mere Christianity along with us. Is this our second podcast on marriage? I don't know. Is Two it? single men with our yeah. second podcast on there marriage. Go. There you go. It's Who better stuff. to hear it from? <laughs> That's true. We're not we're not biased. invested. We're not biased. Yeah, exactly. It's the clear stuff. We'll give it to you straight. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you leave a review and pass this on to your friends. And we will be back next week. <laughs>